So, Shahana, as a New York City Council member, your district includes Park Slope, Gowanus, and Cobble Hill. How does it feel to be in charge of rich white hipsters? Oh my God. <laughs> that has never been asked. Welcome to the Politically Asian Podcast. We're just two Asian American buds talking about politics and the Asian American community in hopes of getting more Asians to talk about politics. We are coming at you live from Brooklyn, New York. My name is Jerry Lim. My pronouns are they, them. And you can find me across the internet at Jerryaki. That's G-E-R-R-I-E-Y-A-K-I. And my co-host... Hey, my name is Aaron Yin. My pronouns are he, him, and you can find me on social media at Aaron Flarin. That's A-A-R-O-N-F-L-A-R-I-N. Let's take care of some housekeeping first. So we have a Patreon. Patreon helps us pay for website fees, hosting fees, and more. And this is one way to financially support us. Right now, we are raising money for Canva Premium to make better memes and infographics. And number two, for transcription services so we can make our podcast episodes more accessible. And in exchange, we have some great perks for you, including merch, shoutouts, behind-the-scenes videos, and more. Um, you can support us at patreon.com slash politicallyasian. Now, if you don't want to give us money, uh, the best way to support us is by giving us five stars on Apple or Spotify. All right, we have a great guest for you today. She is the current city council member for New York's District 39. Please give it up for Shahana Hanif. Woo! Woo! Yay! Thank you. <laughs> what a fun, loving introduction. I am council member Shahana Hanif, and you can find me all over the internet. My Twitter is at CM Shahana Hanif and at Shahana from BK and Instagram. I'm at Shahana from BK. I use she, her pronouns. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So to start off the episode, we're going to start off with our hot take hot pot segment, which is if you're new here, we each offer one opinion about the Asian community and or space that we've just been thinking about lately and discuss them. Then uh, we rank them and the scale goes from one to 15 um, and based on various spices of Asian culture. Uh, It's based on how often we've heard this take within our own circles. And um, yeah, so uh, I'll go first this week. My hot take this week is Asian Americans love to claim Asian cultures that make it mainstream in Western society. Okay, so like boba, anime, but they don't bother learning their ancestral homeland's history or current position in today's geopolitics. Or worse, they participate in ruining the homeland, aka, you know, military, uh, drone strikes, etc. This feels especially ironic given the recent chant, love our people like you love our food and culture. So wow. as, as an example, <laughs> as, as an example, um, here, here, it, it's like, yeah. it's like, ex, uh, Parasite, right? Like the, the movie Parasite, um, which is an entirely Korean movie. Like it's, it's not a diaspora product, right? It's, it's like from mainland Korea and 
I feel like Asian Americans, specifically, you know, Koreans were going off about like Asian representation, but it's it's not. And then on top of that, not learning about like the history of Korea or like the place Mm. Korea plays in um, geopolitics today. Obviously, Korea is just one example. I am not Korean, but that was like the first thing off the top of my head. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. That makes that makes more sense. That's a pretty good example, actually, because I do remember, you know, after Parasite came out, there were, you know, actually, um, you know, a few Koreans talking about, you know, capitalism in Korea. Um, and inflation and all of the the actual factors in Korea that led to the creation of this movie. Um, right. But I do feel like that that kind of analysis was just like totally <laughs> gone from you know people watching Parasite. Um, I'd probably give that like a like a like a number eight, like a Laokan Ma. Okay. I feel like um, or maybe even like a number nine, like a curry at a restaurant that has to predominantly serve white people. Yes. Um, <laughs> I feel like we're kind of scratching at the surface of that kind of interaction. Like, okay, like you can't just consume Asian culture for the sake of like representation, but you kind of actually have to study the actual country itself and like the deeper, you know, political and social issues going on there. I think that's where we're starting to get there, you know, but not not okay. exactly. So that's why I'm kind of ranking it. Like, I'll, I'll give it a nine. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Shahana, what do you think? Just to clarify your hot take is calling out Asians who participate in this sort of simplification. It's calling out Asian Americans. So like uh, Asian diaspora that want to like claim, oh, Asian culture like is cool now. Like, see, it made it in America. It made it in the UK, whatever. But they they want to dissociate or like not even they don't care about like the history of of like our ancestral homeland right or like the context with which that what that thing was created yeah that's definitely a hot take i'll give you that <laughs> it's complex right like having access to the histories of our homelands out here where our textbooks have never had asian south asian history mm-hmm. and we've had to piece together what our families passed down to us and a version of history. So I will give this, I will give this a five Japanese curry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'll take it. I'll take it. You do bring bring up a fair point. (laughs) You do bring up a fair point about accessibility. Um, Though I will say Google, you You can Google stuff these days, guys. It's tough. I've been been processing the words as you were sharing your hot take in the context of my homeland, Bangladesh, and Mm -hmm. just how Mm -hmm. the political feuds among several parties have passed down to the ways in which I've been able to participate in politics out here in New York City. It's almost inseparable. And it's the the thing that has created so much conflict around who do we vote for if Shahana Shahana's family is affiliated with X political party in Bangladesh. So it's it's like bringing up a lot for me as I think about your hot take. Okay, okay. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Aaron, what's your take this week? All right. So this week, um, I've been looking into a lot of uh, wage theft um, at, you know, different, you know, 
Chinatown businesses and nonprofits for like this video series that I have to make. Um, and I feel like we should stop using the blanket statement support Asian businesses because I feel like it makes it harder for people to call out cases where like a business or nonprofit is exploiting like their own workers. Ooh. Okay. On on one hand, yeah, I I agree. Like don't support people who commit wage theft. Um, on the other hand, you know, I think the line support Asian businesses or in general, any kind of like support, insert minority here, business, it would be too, it's 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 because it's catchy, right? It's an SEO term. Like yeah. you can't come up with like a line that says support Asian businesses, but not the ones that commit wage theft because that's too long of a hashtag, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I get it, but um, yeah, no, I get it. I, I think I'm going to give it um, uh, somewhere. I'm going to give it a hot and uh, a six, a hot and, or a six and a half, a hot and spicy spam with Sriracha on it. Yeah. Yo, I was thinking that though, like it could be like the only thing I had in my head was like support Asian workers to put more focus on the worker aspect. But yeah, that that's all I had. It, it is definitely a fair point. Like I'm not sure like a catchy way to somehow also bring wage theft to light. Um, yeah. Yeah. Shahana, what do you think? Every time I've thought about the impact that immigrant owned and especially our Asian owned businesses, um, have had to experience through COVID broadly, we've got to make sure that these businesses survive because they're supporting our neighborhoods, our enclaves, their lifelines to our families. And then of course, um, workers are the ones who are at the receiving end of probably existing abuse like wage theft, among other forms of harassment and uh, all sorts of abuse. And and I got to see that uh, through COVID. And so like anytime I'm talking about businesses or creating legislation around the recovery of small businesses, um, we always talk about workers because workers are not landlords. Workers are um, not making millions off of doing work in these small businesses. And so agreed. I mean, we have to shed a light within our communities that this is happening, that it, we're not immune to the sort of abuse that is happening to workers. So I, yeah, I think I'm with Jerry here. I am between a six and a seven, a hot and spicy spam and sriracha. <laughs> nice cool medium spicy all right shahana what do you have for us uh, today <laughs> you all had very detailed hot takes i have a, a a plain a plain hot take around authenticity of bangladeshi food Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so I'm not sure if we're the experts on this <laughs> at all, but <laughs> I mean, I saw it. your your criteria on uh, the spice levels, and I was like, "Oh, Bangladeshi food and cuisine is not on this list." Um, the way to tell you're in an authentic Bangladeshi restaurant is by asking for green chili pepper. 
And and if they have it, then that's an authentic one. It's a clear sign that they are doing food right. Yeah, I completely like the cultural context of the comment on this. <laughs> I'm just gonna be I'm just gonna be honest. <laughs> I have no fucking idea. It, it just it, it breaks the scale. It's it's the green chili pepper yeah. on its own. It's its yeah. own individual yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think you have to add green chili pepper on the scale. Mm, we yes. will we will add it as as per your request. I it's yeah. on the off season to do list officially as of now. Yeah. Green chili pepper. All right, yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, it's like, yeah, I could come up with like an equivalent at a Chinese restaurant, but I think definitely the focus right now is, uh, to be honest, like, I'm not sure if I've even been to like a, a Bangladeshi restaurant before. I feel like that, yeah, that same. is probably the, the step one that we should probably do. Step that one. is the okay. uh, politically Asian podcast field trip time. Absolutely. Uh, Let's go. Go. <laughs> yeah. Support us on Let's Patreon so we can yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I support oh, yeah. this. So that concludes the hot take hot pot. And now, Shahana, um, we have some questions for you. So, Shahana, as a New York City Council member, your district includes Park Slope, Gowanus, and Cobble Hill. How does it feel to be in charge of rich white hipsters? Oh my God. <laughs> that has never been asked. Yeah. <laughs> to me in this way. I will say that. This um, win is historic because my district has never been represented by a woman, let alone South Asian Muslim woman. And uh, what often gets erased in the conversation about my district is this vibrant, um, beautiful, Bangladeshi working class Muslim enclave in the southern part of the district, Kensington, where I was born, raised, I've had deep roots with my family, and I still live there with my parents. And so I am in the council representing um, one of the most diverse districts where we've got some of the most affluent neighborhoods in Brooklyn. And then uh, neighborhoods like Kensington that are um, working class. So when I talk about my district, I get to lift up the deep inequities and the segregation among our schools, among the resources that we've had access to, and the issues of working class people. Um, and uh, I've been able to move the district in um, in wealth redistribution as issues have come up around our immigrant communities. When ICE was patrolling Kensington and bringing in allies and um, neighbors from the north parts of the district to support our neighbors in need and donate their monies and um, put their bodies on the line for us. And we've gotten to do that. And that's the work that I'm committed to as we push for a much more progressive New York City, a much more uh, representative democracy. And so I'm excited that I get to have the mic right now and that uh, a woman of color gets to lead uh, a district like the 39th. Yeah, like the wealth redistribution part was pretty funny. Like, I like that, that you can use 
one as an example to uplift the other? Yeah, for sure. I um, solidly believe that everybody has a role in protecting one another. And mm. so if you've got money, we need your money. Yeah. Um, funneling, <laughs> into, <laughs> funneling into the good groups that are uh, on the front lines of so many issues. So you are the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus of City Council. And, you know, you're trying to push Eric Adams left a bit on issues like policing and housing and homelessness. And so, like, our question first is, like, how do you convince a mayor who is, like, extremely fond of police and, you know, sweeping up homeless encampments to even think about safety in other ways? Yeah, that's a good question. So the Progressive Caucus is over 30 members, which is more than half the city council. And so right now we've got this major, this major strength in um, demanding uh, a just budget that is going towards investing in housing, investing in ensuring that unhoused people have access to housing and so much more. And so the mayor should be viewing this as the council is is asking that we look after our communities. And so to me, it, it's simple. In, in like a past interview, you said that you support a $1 billion cut to the NYPD's budget. And our question to you is, why not all of it? That's a great question. Of course, I would love for an abolition of uh, all forms of policing in our city. And I stand by that. Um, So right now, as we work towards abolition, um, the starting point here for the council is really assessing what the budget of the police department is. And so what we saw after the death of George Floyd is this national call to pull money away from the police department. And it was through the efforts of organizers and activists um, that this demand of one billion um, was what the council needed to respond to. And the council failed in removing any money. And what we've seen over uh, the last year and in this transition of a new council is absolutely no movement um, around removing this this budget. And, and so I still talk about uh, defunding the NYPD and I've been um, a vocal voice in holding um, the PD's counterterrorism chief, John Miller, accountable around needing to address the egregious Muslim surveillance program that was implemented in the aftermath of 9-11 and have gotten lies and have since uh, leveled up in um, calling the Manhattan District Attorney to do an investigation for perjury on John Miller. And so I've had opportunities to now just get to know the force a little bit more and use my powers within hearings um, to ask questions around how they're spending their dollars, how the police department is spending their dollars. Um, ultimately, the mayor is a former police officer mm-hmm. and 
um, holds the force to uh, to a, a big priority um, in this administration. Which would you say is harder to do, though? Push push Eric Adams to the left, or do you think it'd be harder to push Joe Biden to the left? I'm not sure the effort is to push uh, Eric to the left at all. We want a budget that is responding to the needs of what Asian communities and working class people um, and uh, lower income communities have experienced through COVID. And Mm -hmm. he doesn't need to be a lefty politician (laughs) to put together a budget that is responding to our needs that's fair that's fair um okay so if if you did get some some or all of the nypd's 10 billion dollar funding um what would you do with it would you spend it on green chili pepper what restaurants would you go to (laughs) i would love for us to have opportunities to build community gardens where we're farming and have the produce that we need to feed our communities. And we've definitely seen some of that uh, in my district where community gardens have stepped up to support mutual aid networks. And so for sure, addressing food security (laughs) and ensuring that everybody has access to fresh produce and uh, never um, has a refrigerator without green chili peppers. I mean, that is of utmost important to my refrigerator and my household needs. Um, and I'll also add that um, the the need for mental health um, services is what is constantly on my mind right now in what the Asian, South Asian, Muslim, our working class neighbors and immigrants have experienced and endured through COVID. And so I would love to see um, mental health services in our languages and the support needed to encourage people from our communities to pursue careers in mental health services. That's deep. That's deep. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Why be a doctor when you could be a therapist? Or I guess you could be a psychiatrist. But anyways, besides the point, besides the point. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, this uh, could be the new thing for our community. Be a therapist. Okay, therapists also do make a lot of money. I think like that's, yeah. like, right? like we, we, we should let people know that. Like my therapist charges $150 out of pocket. He's not, <laughs> they're not covered <laughs> by my insurance. So, you know, you can't say the same about doctors. Let's let's go to participatory budgeting. Let's talk about money um, since we're on this subject. So, Shahana, you're a big proponent of participatory budgeting. Can you give a SparkNotes version of like what that is and how it ties into budget justice? Absolutely. So every council member's office has a set amount of money to allocate towards big construction projects like refurbishing a schoolyard to make it more accessible to funds for nonprofit organizations, community-based groups doing work like upstander trainings for our neighbors. And so that funding is decided on solely by 
the council member. So I have full authority to decide how this much money gets distributed. What participatory budgeting does is it says our neighbors should decide how the city's dollars get spent. And so through PB, we are basically shifting um, the decision-making around dollars, our taxpayer money, our, our money to be decided on by us. And so that is one of the easiest micro ways that we get to implement budget justice. Well, Shahana, some of my you know friends, they currently invest in crypto and NFTs. <laughs> um, should, should people who are bad at managing money still be allowed to choose where funds go? Well, the good thing about participatory budgeting is no one has to be an expert on managing money. We just have to be experts in recognizing we need more trees in my neighborhood oh, or yeah. the school that my kid goes to doesn't have working bathrooms. That's, that's about it. It's as simple as that. And I think making, making us think about what's missing in our neighborhoods or what can be improved in our neighborhoods brings us closer to our community and actually pushes us to hold our elected officials accountable. It brings us into democracy and recognizing, oh, why don't we have, why aren't we already spending dollars to improve our schools? Or why aren't we making sure that every single neighborhood has quality air by way of planting more trees. So this is just an effort for one, um, allowing our neighbors to help decide how money should get spent and where, and then bringing us closer to hold our uh, city officials accountable on how money is getting spent. Yeah, but like why pay, like why pay for a few trees when you could pay for an, a JPEG of a tree? Like, I would argue <laughs> that's equally valuable. No. Um, okay. Anyway, <laughs> let's <laughs> let's move on to um, uh, immigration. Um, and uh, you you want more attendance at like community board meetings from immig- immigrant communities, in addition to more immigrants and non non citizens on the community board themselves. Um, So our question for you is, what kind of cut fruits and freebies are you offering to get more uncles and aunties to come to these meetings? That's an excellent question. That's an excellent question. And I, I am certainly pushing to make sure that our public meetings have food. Because right now, (laughs) right now, it is just not appealing. It is just not appealing to show up to a meeting that lasts over an hour. These community board meetings, they go on and on um, without nourishment. And so uh, I'm happy to to take a closer look at what what fruits and vegetables uh, we can bring in. Um, This has been a struggle for the council as well, where we're not allowed to pay out of pocket or using... Um, district dollars for food for our meetings. Hmm. And that deters many people, and especially working people, working class people from showing up to these 
public events and public meetings where we're looking for their input. And so food is a big issue and I'll be pushing for more food justice at our public public <laughs> meetings, not limited to just community board meetings. <laughs> I mean, while we're on the topic of food, you know, last month you introduced some legislation to create um, mandatory universal composting on a scale of one to earthworm. How proficient <laughs> would you say you are at composting? Oh, I'm definitely at one. <laughs> <laughs> definitely at one. I'm definitely at one. Okay. I wish I was at earthworm level and and this is why I'm just such a firm supporter and advocate of composting because it needs to reach our immigrant communities. My parents garden and we could be using compost as soil for the the vegetables that uh, these two are growing every summer. <laughs> and so there is a real um, tangible uh, win here for um, uh, the immigrant community in particular. And so I am a work in progress when it comes to composting. Hmm. Yeah. That. <laughs> yo. I totally thought you were gonna say the opposite. Like, I'm a. I'm a pro. That's why I advocate no. for this. <laughs> like, no, I don't no, know I'm anything. certainly not. And I think like that is that is important. Like, we don't have to be an expert at composting to mm -hmm. advocate for it. We've had such deep inequities in waste and sanitation management in our city and the current model of composting is is an opt-in model where we're saying you need to make a request and we'll send over a brown bin and that has created deep inequities um and that's just not okay so i want to make sure everybody has access to composting and i'll be fighting hard with my colleagues, uh, in particular, council member Sandy Nurse, who is the chair of the sanitation committee and a big advocate for composting. She's actually at earthworm level. She's earthworm <laughs> level. Okay. <laughs> yeah, she's earthworm level. So I have a lot to learn. I am excited to, to teach and get the city to do this, to ensure everybody has access to um, composting. Nice. Okay. Um, I feel like we're kind of trying to do rapid fire here, um, but moving on to um, a little bit about housing, you recently passed your first local law, which congratulations, um, intro 160A, I believe, which mandates space heaters sold in New York City must be equipped with technology that automatically turns them off if they tip over or overheat. To which we want to ask, what do you have to say to people who are trying to get back at their landlord by burning down their apartment? <laughs> oh i mean i think this is the hot take that <laughs> that you all are looking for the literal I hot take more power to them yeah this is the more power to them um that's all i have to say about that oh okay oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> let all me right. find my match just right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness um yeah, um, yeah. Okay, well, moving on um, to uh, some neighborhood um, work. So you're working with my district's uh, representative, Crystal Hudson, to fix Grand Army Plaza by adding additional mm -hmm. pedestrian space and bike lanes. 
what kind of bribe would I have to give you to get cars completely removed from that area altogether? You don't need to give me a bribe. I <laughs> will be working to get fewer cars uh, to get to to get cars off of the Grand Army Plaza area. I mean, it used to be that there were fewer cars um, around that section. And so right now, through pedestrianizing, through ensuring that there's protected bike lanes, um, we will see uh, fewer cars as a result of these changes. And so that's our hope. You don't have to bribe me. Uh, I believe in (laughs) I believe in fewer cars, no cars in um, so many hubs of uh, Brooklyn. Hmm. Got it. Okay. So we we won't have to spend money on those green chili peppers uh, after all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You don't have to send over like packages of green chili peppers to to get me to do that. All right. Nice. That is, see, that is the, the, uh, kind of good news. Um, I think we should close the episode out on, um, no more cars, Grand Army. Um, so uh, we're coming up on time. So Shahana, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for coming on to the pod. Um, if you could please let our listeners know where they could find you online one more time. Absolutely. Thank you, Jerry and Aaron, for having me. These were fun questions. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at CM Shahana Hanif or... Shahana from BK and also on Instagram at Shahana from BK. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, again, you can follow the podcast at Politically Asian Podcast on Instagram. Oh my goodness. At Politic Asian Pod on Twitter or send us fan mail or hate mail at Politically Asian Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, like we said, if you could leave a five star Apple or Spotify review, that would be awesome. Um, Cool. Thanks for listening and 